listening to the Oil & Gas This Week podcast with Mark LaCour and Paige Wilson. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. You're listening to Oil & Gas This Week podcast brought to you by IBM. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Thanks to everyone for joining us again for First Friday Q&A, episode 212. And you know what the question is everybody is just waiting for us to answer? Why we didn't put out an episode last week? No, but what? maybe that's number two. Oh. Where are your lap, your desktops? Oh. And finally, finally. Thank you, Apple. We got our new desktops in. They're set up and they're awesome. Yep. And why didn't we put an episode out last week? Because I thought last week was First Friday Q&A because I forgot that, you know, there was an extra day in the month of July and thought that fell on a Thursday and and we were just too busy and I didn't have time to put news articles together. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, we need to work on that. Luckily, one of our listeners, Ludwig, called us on that and let us know that last Friday wasn't the first Friday QA, but this one it will be. Yeah. Yeah, it works out. All right. Speaking of working out, we got some reviews. You want to try to read them with all the amper signs in there? Oh <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Paige and Mark make the weekly wrap-up of oil and gas events and news a pleasure to absorb and comprehend. As a newbie to the industry, I absolutely adore the fact that there are people who share the same love I have for the industry. Roll Tide. My response to that, wearing an LSU t-shirt, is, well, besides thank you for the compliment, go Tigers. Yeah. As a five-star review, we got another five-star review. Found this valuable resource while laid off and going back to school in 2017. I never miss an episode. So thank you for uh, both these people that left reviews. If you'd like to get a shout-out on the show, or if you have some suggestion, leave us a review, and then let us know what you'd like to see change. All right, so let's get into the questions. All right, so this first one is pretty lengthy, so I'll do my best to sum it up. Yeah, you have to skip around a good bit. Yeah, a little bit. So it's from Jane Doe, which is she's a logging engineer at an undisclosed company. Hi, Mark and Paige. I look forward to each episode coming out. I love you and Paige and your relentless optimism, good humor, and relevant content make an excellent show. I'm a young open hold logging engineer, currently laid off, and I'm looking for some encouragement. I love what I do and the job, but the industry and turbulence of the last years have been difficult. I had to work incredibly hard to even get into this industry and found my first job by a fortunate cold call, which that's something you absolutely love, Mark, cold calling, in 2017 after applying for literally hundreds of jobs. I'm grateful for the opportunities I've been able to find and great people I've had the chance to work and learn from. But when it comes to service company management, more than anything, I've felt abused, minor mistakes, i.e. truck parked in the wrong side of the yard, and small job problems have always prompted Hellfire to rain down. I've recognized my customers and requested as the logging engineer that want logging their wells. While I'm not perfect, I am reasonably competent field engineer. I feel like I've been punished super harshly by management over the years. I was suspended for two weeks for going 78 miles per hour in a company vehicle, fired and then rehired for a gun that flooded due to a batch of flawed port plugs, berated and threatened for rescuing a stray puppy that got stuck in some discarded equipment in the yard. I take responsibility for my mistakes and shortcomings, but the latter list is a few things I feel I was punitively punished for. Also, the times I've made legitimate mistakes, my immediate management and peers were tended towards a more pragmatic understand that when you expect someone to be awake for 24 hours logging a well and there's a typo in the log header and a curve off scale, they probably aren't deserving of death. 
I read all kinds of articles along the lines of oil and gas do have millennial problems and how they aren't attracting talent. But I have a suggestion. Maybe when you attract them, don't be a miserable place to work. Honestly, just in general, don't incentivize management that makes your company a miserable place to work. Last year, I considered leaving this industry permanently, but I didn't because I genuinely love the job, but I fear and despise my management. I don't expect my management to hug me or give me affirmations each morning, but slightly more courteous dealing with me and threatening me over minor infractions less. On one hand, I'm pretty sure I might just be told oil fill service companies and that management that they have had always been horrible and everyone just gets used to it. You get paid and you leave. On the other hand, I actually think there is a systematic problem in how service companies treat their people. I'd love to hear what you and Paige have to say on it. So first thing, Jane, I get it, right? And especially in the field in this industry can be brutal, both physically and emotionally. Trust me, and I know it's hard for you to believe me, trust me, it's a lot better now in 2020 than it was in the 80s and 90s. A couple of points. So first thing, I agree with you that we have a hard time attracting talent, but we have an even harder time in retaining talent. That's something as an industry that we're working on, we need to work on. And companies out there, especially service companies, that even in this you know very low crude price, low consumption 2020 world that we're living in right now, the people that you have left, if you don't treat them well and don't worry about retaining them, you're going to lose them. And it's going to be a big loss to your competitors who then are going to pull ahead of you. The other thing, Jane, I would suggest is it's different cultures in different service companies. I've not been exposed to the small service companies much, but to the large service companies, the Halliburtons and the Bakers and the Weatherfords, I've been exposed to them a good bit and I've been in the field with all of them. Once again, it's it's all about who your immediate management is. You can work for one of the big service companies with a, a crew leader that is great, treats his people well, that stands up for them, that protects them, but you could work for the same company and have another crew leader that takes advantage of everything, is only worried about themselves. My advice to you and to anybody out there, and this isn't just in oil and gas, but it's really to like kind of to the future, is your job security in today's age is not based upon how well you do your job or how great you get along with everybody. Your job security, quite frankly, is your ability to get another job. If you're not being treated well, wherever the position is, move, right? So you know, at least give your company a chance, bring it up to upper management, ignore it, or if they don't fix the problem, or worse, if they punish you for, for actually reporting it, go somewhere else. And I do know that right now that's a really hard thing to do. But the industry's changing. It's just not changing fast enough, especially in the field in North America. You'd actually really be interested if you went out in the field, and I say the field because you're in the ocean on the production platform. If you go into the North Sea, the culture there, the way they treat the the people, the, the service comes everything is vastly different than what you see up in some of the plays here in the U.S. So, you know, so sorry you had to deal with all this crap. And I'm going to go ahead and say that, even though Apple may penalize me for saying that. That's not the industry that I want to work for, and it's not the industry it could be in the future. But unfortunately, it still happens now. Paige, you've had some crappy experiences in this industry. Yeah, yeah, I have. But I'm going to keep my mouth shut. <laughs> uh, any advice for Jane? Keep your head up. I mean, just like Mark said, leave. I mean, I mean, that's the best thing you can do. Remove yourself from that situation and try to avoid getting into it again. I mean, and that's really hard to do. Yeah. The other thing, Jane, in order for you to feel comfortable about leaving is you need to have certainty that you can leave, right? If this is your only job and it's paying your mortgage, and of course you're not going to want to leave, right? And then you're going to be tormented because you're in a job you hate, but you can't leave. Once again, you know, no matter what you're doing, you still, I think everybody in this industry needs needs to carve out a little bit of time for networking, proactive 
useful, valuable network. I'm not talking about going to a free cocktail event and having drinks with your buddies. I'm literally talking about reaching out to people that work for other companies that may be a peer of yours or maybe somebody you can help and, and being helpful to them. You do that, you know, put two hours in your, a month in your calendar to do that, to that type of networking. And I promise you, after a year of doing that, you will have other opportunities sit in your back pocket. Right. And and as far as my experience goes, I've learned that it's easier to find another job is when I have a job. Yep. So that's all I got for that one. Thanks for your question, Jane. And, and, and we didn't read the whole thing, but thank you for spending the time to spell everything out. I know it took a bit of time on your part to, to write this. Yeah, exactly. All right. So next question is from Phil Pearson, which is the president of Mud Buckets, which is a rental tool. Mark, when is Mark going to discuss global warming with a person from IBM? Yeah, I actually wrote, re- reached out to Phil earlier. So Phil, if you're listening, thank you for being a listener. So our whole video debate with one of the top climate scientists at IBM and myself was supposed to happen. And then we had this COVID-19 thing, thing happen. And, and we're still going to do it. His name is David Gold. He's a great guy. I've, had him, I've interviewed him on the tech show. But we're just going to wait things to get closer to normal. Right now, neither OGGN or IBM wants to put people together to shoot video unless it's absolutely necessary. And you know, me having IBM try to change my opinion on global warming is, is fun, and I'm looking forward to it, but it's not absolutely necessary. So, Phil, give us some time. We'll do it. I'm just not quite sure when, dude. It, it may even be next year before we get to it, but we will do it. There's been too much of a demand for people wanting to see and listen to it, and I'm looking forward to it myself. And honestly, if I'm wrong, if David changes my mind, I'll, I'll admit that on the video. I was wrong, right? I don't expect to say that, but I will if I need to. I'll be eating popcorn. <laughs> he had another question. Is there a website I can put my pattern mud bucket on for operators that they might be interested in giving it a try? Yes, there is actually, Phil. Go check out oilandgaspitchpodcast.com. We're doing something during this COVID-19 to help a lot of the smaller people still get in front of clients or buyers. And basically, we're, we're recording a podcast like this one, which is audio only, but we're also shooting professional two-camera video, and then we're pushing out on all of our social. So basically, you get to leverage the power of our marketing team to market your product or service. And we encourage salespeople to come on that show and literally pitch their product or service. I want you to try to sell it. I mean, literally try to sell it to our oil and gas audiences. There's a small fee involved. It's not much, but if you go to oilandgaspitchpodcast.com, you can check out all the pricing and everything there, but we'd love to see you on, the, on that show, Phil. All right. Next question is from Anthony Dixon, Senior Analyst Lead Economic Modeler from the California Energy Commission. How cool is that? Yeah. Hello. Love the show. Such a great source of information. Quick background. I am the Lead Economic Modeler for the California Energy Commission. As you know, California is moving very aggressively away from fossil fuels for electricity and transportation. My question is about renewable natural gas and hydrogen. Do you see these as viable alternatives in a quantity that would signify offset the use of fossil natural gas? Sorry, this is how I'm programmed to talk about natural gas. (laughs) Furthermore, what would be the costs to upgrade the pipelines to accommodate higher concentrations of hydrogen as it is damaging the pipelines as they are currently built. Thank you again. Really appreciate your show and views, especially living in California. So Anthony, Paige and I both love the geography of California. Mm -hmm. Let's get that straight right off the bat. It is some of the most beautiful landscapes on the planet. So we love California. Maybe not to politics, we love everything else. So this is a really interesting question. And you're seeing hydrogen come to the forefront of the energy mix very rapidly. A couple of things. So there's, there's, you have to be able to make 
any fuel economically viable. That includes hydrogen. Hydrogen is really cool because when you combust it or when you use it in a fuel cell, the byproduct is water, fresh water. Right? Huh. What, a, what a nice waste product. Huh? <laughs> and that's actually how the astronauts gets, gets their fresh water when they're up in space in the space station is they're using fuel cells and they're using hydrogen and oxygen to generate electricity and the byproduct is water that you can drink. Interesting. So how, I didn't know cool that. If your car ran on hydrogen, you got thirsty, you just went uh, sucked on the tailpipe. Because the visual in my head. a bad way to describe yeah. that. <laughs> but a couple of things here. So we got to be able to make hydrogen economically. The most economical way, this cracks me up, is you strip it out of natural gas. <laughs> well, thank you. You're still buying natural gas from me. Right. <laughs> I appreciate it. But you're decreasing the energy density. So you could have taken the natural gas, which is mostly methane, and use that for fuel, and you would get more energy out of that than you get out of the hydrogen that you remove from the natural gas. So number one is you decrease energy density, which is which is something you need to think about. Number two is hydrogen needs to be moved around. And to your point, current pipelines here in Europe are not built for hydrogen. Now, small amounts of hydrogen, say two to maybe, maybe even 10% mixed with the natural gas, is not damaging to the pipeline. It's a very economical way to move hydrogen around because you're moving natural gas around. You're just moving the hydrogen with it, right? It's sort of like you have a train and you just added another car. It's not a very big cost of transport. When you get to higher percentages of that, our current steel pipeline infrastructure isn't made for that. The hydrogen either leads to the steel getting more brittle, in which case it'll fail at welds, or it actually can cause corrosion. So it only can move. And then if you move it at that higher concentration and you're not moving it with natural gas, then you have to have the economics that somebody's paying for you to move hydrogen around. And the only way that works is if you have the end use refilling stations. So the economics to move hydrogen around at higher concentrations economically will not be a reality until you have hydrogen gas stations everywhere, right? As, as the end fuel point. Haven't we seen something like that around We've, Houston? There's one experimental hydrogen refill station here in the city of Houston. Okay. Right? And work on Now, the other way to make hydrogen is called electrolysis. It's really interesting because it's a, it's a good way to store energy by renewables such as solar and wind. So when the wind is really blowing in Texas, we produce more electricity than we, the entire state can use. We have this extra electricity. And that happens in California as, as well, Anthony. So one of the things you can do with that electric, extra electricity is you can basically run it through seawater. And if you run electricity through seawater with an anode and diode, I think on the diode side, you release hydrogen. And on the anode side, you release oxygen. I may have that backwards, so please no hate mail. So basically, you run electricity through seawater and you produce hydrogen. That can be very economical as well. Now, here's the problem. When you produce hydrogen that way, you have salts that are left over. The salts do not translate into the vapor of hydrogen or oxygen. So the salts get left in the seawater. So when you electrolyze seawater, it's a cheap way to make hydrogen if you're using leftover renewable energy, electricity. But now you're making the sea saltier, which is not good for the environment. So really appreciate you reaching out. Hydrogen could be the fuel of the future. I don't think so. I think it's going to be a specialized fuel of the future. It makes a lot of sense, especially in things like fuel cells. But the benefits of natural gas just so far outweigh switching over to hydrogen, including things like we already have the infrastructure built. So, you know, I don't think it's going to go there. Now, in states like California, where politics plays such a, a crucial role in the energy sources and energy choices of the inhabitants of California, I can see politics pushing California rapidly toward hydrogen. But any fuel supply any energy supply has its 
impacts to the environment. It has its economic cost, and you just have to weigh those out. I like hydrogen. I think it's a, a great fuel. I just don't think the economics make any sense, especially right now with natural gas prices as low as they are. Right. All right. So next question is from Manoj Kosuru. I hope I said that correctly. Sorry. He's a manager at Schlumberger. Hello, Mark and Paige. I've been listening to your podcast for a few months now. I like your content and you are doing a big help keeping the listeners abreast of the developments in this enormous oil and gas sector. Thanks. Off late, the up down cycles in the oil and gas have been become frequent. I would like to gather your thoughts on how should oil majors manage the frequent cycles? You have mentioned several times that key talent is looking away from oil, owning to increase job security, which is an even bigger problem for the years ahead. Is automation, robotics, in the oil sector is a feasible idea given the high cost of implementation versus long-term stability in pricing business? What a great question. I love this. All right, so a couple of things I want to talk about here. So number one is you're right in that lately the boom and bust cycles in upstream have gotten shorter, right? We just had a major one in 2014. We're going through one right now in 2020. That's only six years. Typically, it's 10 to 15 years between cycles. Now, the other thing that's interesting is if you work in upstream or an upstream service company like Schlumberger, your world really is upstream. So when, when Exxon is hurting drilling wells, Schlumberger is hurting. Typically, the pipeline part of the industry, midstream and downstream are, are on fire. So if you have the ability as a, an individual or as a company to move your business from upstream to midstream to downstream when there's a down cycle in prices, you're fine, actually. Just a lot of service companies don't ever make that jump. So the thing that's unique about this cycle is we have a, a decreased global demand for refined products. So we can't move our business over to downstream because they're hurting as well. Do I think robotics and machine learning automation is a feasible solution to this? No. Do I think it's part of the solution? Absolutely. We're an industry, no matter what part of the industry you're talking about, we're an industry of engineers and project managers. Every single thing we do is an engineering project and a project management project. And you have to have engineers and project managers. The machines make their jobs easier and better, which means you can do more work safer with less people, but you still need the people. And I don't know what we're going to do. We're facing this talent shortage of epic proportions. I uh, recently interviewed the head of venture capital, ExxonMobil. That episode should be out on the tech podcast in a month or so. And when I was asking him off the mic, what is the biggest challenge they're facing? He goes, it's future talent, you know? And so th- there is no solution that, that I've seen. And, and uh, there's a bunch of parts of the solution. Technology is a major part of that solution. But as an industry, if we can't change this public perception that we have allowed to happen, that we're destroying the planet, it, it's going to really, really hurt us in a time when our own politics are hurting us, in a time when our own economic model is hurting us. And this is probably a good time to, to re-announce or to announce that we're actually trying to help with this. Are we? Yeah. What are we doing? I have no idea. I was we looking. are launching a new podcast <laughs> sponsored by Hewlett Packard oh, Enterprise that one. called Oil and Gas Elevate. We're going to be the first media company to start telling the good stories of our industries, the schools we build, the prosperity we bring, the volunteer work that we do, the homeless that we feed, the education that we do. And we don't do it for money. We do it because it's the right thing to do. So stay tuned for Oil and Gas Elevate, which is going to be the good, almost think of it as the ESG, the good ESG stories of our industry. We're going to move the needle with that show. It's been a passion project of mine. But until we can start changing public perception globally, we're going to have this talent shortage problem. And and like I said, we have to have the people, you know, and, and we don't. 
right now we're surviving because everything is compressed down and everybody's trying to run as lean as possible. But when it comes back, and it will come back in the next year, companies aren't going to be able to hire enough. And so then you're going to end up with a war for talent, a pricing war, so people are going to pay more than they should, which means you have people making twice what they should. So the next time we have a downturn, they're going to get laid off. Now, the way to get away from this layoff thing, and and I've said this before, it started off almost as a joke, but I sincerely believe this would make a huge difference. If the major producers in the world, if us, OPEC, and Russia could sit down once a quarter and discuss production numbers and agree upon them and stick to it, we would end this boom and bust cycle. It would just end. You know, when things start, when the world's economy starts slowing down, all three of us take our foot off the gas. We produce less, which keeps prices up, which makes us all healthy. And then when the economy's back on the war, we all step on the gas to provide the energy we need to grow. So, you know, if anybody out there is in a position to help make this happen, I will volunteer my time and I will donate some of OGGN's money if we can get the three parties together as a table because it will fix this problem. All right. So next question is from Brendan Webb, project champion at, again, Slumberger. Question is, the American rig count that is announced at the end of each episode is provided by Everness or Ever. How do you say that? Just because you just said it wrong. It's the old drilling info. How about that? Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Will you discuss why you report this number instead of the Baker Hughes rig count? So just FYI, that was here when I got here. So that Mark's going to have to answer it. Yeah, Brendan, so I can tell you what happened. So Drilling Info worked with us and they wanted us to start using their numbers because they wanted some exposure. And we were, there's supposed to be some compensation back and forth between us. That part of the deal never happened, but we had already plugged them into the machine, the podcast machine. So we've been reporting their numbers ever since. I don't really care. Brendan, if Baker Hughes' numbers is are better in some reason, let me know. And if it's better, we'll switch to them. Yeah, I have no problem. Actually, since they're a sponsor, we probably should switch to them anyway. Yeah, let's go ahead and do that. You know what, Brendan? Thank you. You just helped your competitor get more exposure. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're, because of your question, we are now switching to Baker Hughes. You can make a note of that? <laughs> yeah. Page, seriously? Yeah. Okay. So the next episode we record, it will be the Baker Hughes rig count. Okay. Done. Oh, and then he says, Paige, welcome to the show. Thank you. I look forward to hearing more of your unique perspective during future episodes. Thank you. And I'll let you read this one because this is your favorite person. Ludwig Hoff from Hoff Profit. He writes in, you know, he listens to every show. He's in the Netherlands, does business all over the world. English is not his primary language and he's also blind. And so I just appreciate the bejeebies out of him listening to the show and I get six or seven emails after each show from him about different things. And so even though I don't always respond back to you, Ludwig, I appreciate what you're doing. And I appreciate you following our show and being a listener. And I appreciate all of our listeners, all of our existing listeners and all of our new listeners. And I tell you what, we've had a lot more questions this time around. So that's been great. It has been great. We, actually, since we've brought, since you've come on board, Paige, we've gotten a lot, not only a lot more questions, a lot better questions and a lot more questions for women. Hell yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. So here's his question. What is the difference between firms going bust and those being bought for pennies on the dollar? And and what the reason he's asking is he's looking to see what he should invest his own money in, what he should consider investing in. So if we stick to the upstream companies, both the operators and the service companies, the biggest difference I see between the ones that are going bankrupt and the ones that are being bought is management. It's not the portfolio of their prospect. It's not the quality of their drilling or completions. It's do they have a high quality management team that can lead an organization through good times and through bad times. And so that's the biggest difference I see is those those companies that have great management are surviving and they're surviving to the point they can get bought, right? So their people can keep working. His next question is what would happen if the house of Saudi would collapse and take OPEC down in its collapse? 
maybe a world war, definitely war in the Middle East. The financial stability that Saudi Saudi Arabia brings with its OPEC participation to that part of the country keeps everything kind of stable, right? So if I'm if you're making money and your people are being fed, you're less likely to want to fight your neighbor for food or, or resources. If OPEC crash, you would see co- turmoil in the Middle East. You got to remember. Most of the governments in the Middle East are still tribal, right? Even though they're monarchies, they're still based on tribes. Not that there's anything wrong with that. In some ways, I sort of like that better than our politics <laughs> in 2020 here in the U.S. I kind of wish we had tribes that ruled everything. But it just would be it would be chaos if OPEC fell. And it would be chaos for a long time. And then what would happen is they would, because of the strife and the warfare would happen, they would lose their infrastructure. So even though they're still sitting on a lot of very cheap oil and gas, they wouldn't be able to get it to market economically. And unfortunately, that would open up the door for Russia and the U.S. and China to take that market share away from OPEC, which means there would never be an OPEC again. Don't want that to happen. I'm not a fan of OPEC, but I definitely do not want OPEC to collapse because of the the strife and the warfare would cause in the Middle East. Yeah. All right. So the next question is from Trevor, which is a field engineer with Imperial. In a previous Q&A, you touched on peak oil demand and your thoughts that it wouldn't occur until 2150. Could you explain why you have a different view than the 2019 DNVGL energy report that has oil demand dropping by 50% by 2050 and peak demand occurring in mid 2020? As a young engineer, hearing and reading reports like that have me concerned about long-term job security. Love the podcast. Keep up the good work. Okay, so the biggest difference, and, and I know DNV. We actually almost closed a deal with them, and I'm still they're on my still list of people I'd like to do business with in the, in the future. The biggest difference is the report that you're referencing is they they polled their customers and asked their opinion. And so, without getting too deep into the way that you actually have to structure surveys so that you don't introduce a bias into your data. It's basically like they asked a bunch of their friends, what do you think is going to happen? And they put that in this report. So Trevor, what's your, in that report, the difference is this is what DNV's clients think are going to happen, not based upon the facts of supply, demand, constraints, growth, energy needs, all that sort of stuff. The other thing is there's a bit of a political slant. So because of the ownership of DNV, they tend to be a little bit more, I would say, liberal. And so they like the idea of the world transitioning over 50% to renewables by 2050. So because they like it, they talk about it. I, you know, let's see, what is it, 2020, 30? I may make it to 2050. I'm going to be one old grumpy person if I make it that far. Duh. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, you watch. By the time we get to 2050, hydrocarbons are still going to be a major component of our, of our energy mix. Now, that mix has changed like it's done through history. You know, originally we used biofuels, right? We burned wood, which is not really cool. At some point not that long ago, we thought the best way to light our homes was to kill whales and boil their fat down and make whale oil. That actually wasn't really good. Hydrocarbons are going to be here forever. Now, their use for fuels is declining, but their use for products is increasing, and and that will continue as well. As far as he's a field engineer, I wouldn't be worried anything about long-term job security. Like we just spoke about, there's a talent shortage in this industry that's only going to get worse. And so all you have to do is just stay in the industry, Trevor, and you're going to be okay. Yeah. And so, you know, and then once again, I don't have a crystal ball. 
even the research work we do, and Modal Point started off as a market research company, and I understand research methodology extremely well, understand how not to introduce a bias. Now, the funny thing is, even though I know how not to introduce a bias in a research, there's still a bias that I introduce. So then you have to validate your research. DNV did none of that on this, on this report, none whatsoever. So even though you know, we look at supply and demand. There's a bunch of errors in, in the research that we do. Like I can't figure out how much oil's in storage. Nobody can. I can't figure out what is the real production numbers during good times from OPEC and Russia. Nobody can. So I have to guess. And it's an educated guess, but it's still a guess. And then naturally, because I'm so pro oil and gas, even that bias creeps into my research. And I tend to want to look for the optimistic side of everything. So, you know, I think uh, DNV is a great company. I think they're Estimates of oil demand dropping by 50% by 2050 is totally missing the mark. It'll be at least another 50 years, if not 100 years, after 2050 before that actually happens. And the demand for hydrocarbons on this world will level out, so we will have peak demand, but it won't disappear. It's not going to be like a bell curve where it goes up and goes down. It's going to go up and then just level off. And if you think about that, that actually might be good for our industry in, in you know, 2150, 2200. If the demand is just leveled off so we can predict it, so we then can produce the hydrocarbons in a manner that keeps prices where everybody's happy. So I wouldn't worry about that at all. I do get this a lot from a lot of young people. And lately, especially since the majors have been very public about their wanting to switch to a lower carbon future, it makes you think that the Exxons and BPs of the world are planning to get away from hydrocarbons. They're not. They're not, right? That's their core business. They're good at it. There's a demand for it. There'll always be a demand for it. They will change their mix a little bit, but we're all doing that. I mean, I'm going to put solar in my house, you know, so you're, you're good, Trevor. No worries. All right. So last question is from Julie Rothschild, marketing director at Weir. Sounds familiar. We know them. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. We, yeah. We definitely know Weir, but her name sounds familiar. Mark and Paige, I'm a huge fan of your show, or should I say show, Smiley Face. With this, shall we say, different year, I'm struggling with how to best market what we do. No trade shows, no lunch and learns. Everybody are are mostly still locked down at home and our budgets have been slashed. What have you seen that works? And almost as importantly, what have you seen that doesn't work? Paige, you and I chat. Oh, that's why. Paige, you and I chatted for a bit at one of your happy hours and I was impressed with how down to earth and friendly you were. Look forward to sharing more Vino with you. <laughs> right back at you. Ah, happy hours. This seems like a distant memory. Well, right. And I'm trying to go which one because, oh my goodness, we've had how many? Here. Here? Yeah. Midland. Yeah. 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 All right, Julie. I am not trying to promote podcasting, but honestly, if you ask me what I'm seeing working right now with everybody still locked down home, it's podcast. Our inbound leads have grown tremendously. You know, we have very big companies closing deals with us. Because they still need to reach their existing clients and their future clients, their prospects. And to your point, conventional marketing doesn't right, work right now. There's no trade shows. You can't spend any money on print. People are still locked down at home. But because they're locked down at home, they're bored. So the consumption of our shows has went through the roof. So right now, you know, all the guys podcasting is, is almost the only game in town. The other thing that we've experimented with, and it's worked extremely well when we got it right, and when we don't get it right, it fails <laughs> miserably, it yeah. Yeah, is live streaming. Now, don't get that confused with like a webinar. Live stream is totally different. First thing is, at least on LinkedIn, you have to be approved for live streaming. They don't just give it to you like Facebook. It's a different set of technology, a different set of tools, and, and a different go-to-market strategy. So a webinar is basically me talking 
to a bunch of you. So I'm whoever, I'm talking about whatever, and hopefully I have an audience sign up and they listen to what I have to say. Quite frankly, people are sick of those right now. They're sick of Zoom calls. They just don't want to do that. A live stream is a bunch of us talking to a bunch of you in real time, right? So put together a panel of something that's of interest, have some experts there, make sure they have some personality, engage with your audience, make sure that what your panel is, the topic of your panel is something that your audience has an interest in, but don't make it about you. So as an engineering company, don't do a live stream on how you're able to engineer projects to be completed on time and on budget. That's you trying to sell yourself. Do a live stream on what are the top three things that could cause you to miss your project deadlines that you haven't thought about? Or in your experience, you know what project management tools does your company use to make sure that your company's projects are complete on time and on budget? You know, it's just a slightly different twist where you're not talking about you, but you're talking about problems that your clients have, which then elevates you to be seen as that thought leader, which then drives business your way because people always want to talk to the thought leader. So really, that's the only two things I've seen work while everybody's locked down at home is our, our podcasts are reaching people and people are engaged with us there. And then live stream, which once again, is not a webinar. It's, it's completely different. When we live stream, we live stream simultaneously on, if I get this right, on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. YouTube, YouTube, and our OGGN website. That's a huge audience to, to put your content in front of. So, you know, hopefully that was helpful to you in some way. Julie, if you, if you want some tips on how to do it right, or more importantly, how to do it wrong, because we've done it both ways in the live stream, <laughs> just reach out to me. I'd be happy to talk through that. In the podcast, I mean, y'all could start one yourselves. My advice would be to go find an independent third-party company that does it because it gives it more weight. If Weir starts its own podcast, some of that content, some of that messaging is going to be discounted because people are going to go, oh, it's a weird, weird podcast. They're marketing themselves. Where if you have an independent third-party, it gives you much more, you know, elevates you more in, in in the market right there. But there's not a lot working real well right now, Julia. There's just a couple things I've seen that's, that's working. What about you, Paige? Hmm? What about you, Paige? Have you seen anything that's working from a marketing point of view? I'm not in marketing. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the number one. I know something that we've made mistakes on has not been promoted enough time prior to the event right yeah so so yeah it's another thing julie is that if you're going to do live streaming uh, you need to promote it. i would say probably a month wouldn't you say page a month I, three weeks well, so so we normally do a month i would almost say an extra week on top of that just to be sure yeah but yeah that's just what i've noticed all right time for the ibm giveaway oh yeah and guess what what we're finally i've caught so much grief over this about not giving away stuff on the serial number, but we, we're finally getting swag delivered this yeah, week. Yeah, good, good, good. So pay attention, people. Our next recording, we should be able to start giving away cool stuff. But you can't get the cool stuff unless you have the shirt, and you can't get the shirt unless you enter. And so go to the show notes, click on the link, put in your information. We give one away a week. They're really cool. They look great. They smell great. <laughs> they smell great. <laughs> they I smell hope, great. They I hope really so. <laughs> and... Each one has a unique serial number, which we're going to use in future shows to give away some cool stuff. So stay tuned. And then our weekly rig count. Sorry, drilling info. This is the last time that we'll use your number. What is it? Well, yeah. So I was actually trying to look at that. And the one from drilling info is a, a lot more accurate because it's based off of this month. I was looking at Baker Hughes and it's from July. So we're definitely going with this. So it's at 279, 3% down from last week. Damn. I wish it downward spiral just stop and level out. But we're close to getting there. Right. Speaking of close to getting there, go join our street team because we're pretty close to getting there. 
I can't make do a better segue than that. Anyway, it's all really. <laughs> it's our all volunteer group. You basically help us with our social media. Probably once a month or so, usually it's me. We'll reach out to the the group and ask to help promote stuff. Basically, you're just liking and commenting on stuff. And when life gets back to normal, and when you're we're in your local area, you can join us as part of a press team. And we got some cool swag coming for you as well. And speaking of coming for you as well, we're going to start re-releasing the monthly All Gats Events newsletter. The first one will go out the week right before September. It'll be the September 1st. A bunch of cool stuff, all the events that you can go to, plus private insider-only stuff. And then if you want myself or any of our other podcasters to come to your sales or marketing kickoff, to your corporate Virtu- event, virtually. virtual event, let us know. We'd be happy to speak. I've actually done a lot of virtual speaking, and it's different, but it's fun. And then this, of course, is the first Friday Q&A. Remember, the goal is not to stump Paige and I. The goal is to ask questions to help educate your peers. So feel free to go to Oil and Gas this week. Click on Ask a Question. If we use your question on there, we get a big shout out. And while you're out there, go to the website and sign up and hurry up because the individual websites for all our podcasts will be disappearing soon and everything's going to be hosted on OGGN, which you still will be able to sign up for. But go ahead and go to All Gas this week. Give us your email address. We promise not to spam you. And then join our LinkedIn group. We're over 40,000. I'm sorry, LinkedIn page. We're over 40,000 members of that page. Go join. It's all your All and Gas peers. And it's the home for this podcast and our other All and Gas podcast. And Paige, we got a little man that is desperate for a walk. Yep. I was just about to say, we got to go walk a dog. Listened very carefully. You heard those little whining stuff in the Whimpers and grunting. Yeah. So we got to go take care of dog dog. So you ready to get out of here? I am. All right, folks. Remember, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here are our events on deck. Hey, everybody. Alex here with the events on deck. So due to current circumstances, of course, we are not able to have any in-person events. So I have nothing of that nature to update you guys on. But we have been hosting some virtual events. So OGGN is wanting to offer free webinars, live happy hours, etc. during this time. Since these events are not scheduled out as far in advance as in-person events, we would like to keep you guys updated via Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter. So be sure to keep checking up on that and we'll keep you guys posted on anything we're offering. It has been free. We want to offer you guys value during this time that we're all at home. So please continue checking in and joining us for these virtual events. We are looking forward to seeing you guys whenever we're able to have in-person events and hope you're staying safe and sound. Tune in next week for another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.